Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word heard on 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Okay, we're back. And joining us, uh, Rich Martini. Um, how is your day going? So far, it's going really fantastic. So what, what about your journey to this work? I mean... Let's just talk about that. I don't know how how long do we have today, by the way. I have as long as you want. I, no, actually. Okay, very good. <laughs> I we'll do. have a couple of days of Rich Martini. <laughs> very good. There we go. So, well, let's tell, let's you know this is something I like to do with. So, who am I? Let me just give you a real before we get it, get into my questions to you. My journey to this same you know world, the same research that you've also had the same journey to. Um, didn't begin until late in life because I was basically pursuing, you know, a mediocre career in Hollywood. Um, you know, you only get so many films that you can make and can't make. And so I had been making films since I went to film school and USC, blah, blah, blah. And at some point I got a chance to start making documentaries and teaching about documentaries. And I ran across some work of Michael Newton, who is a hypnotherapist who, has been, um, he's written a number of books, Journey of Souls, Destiny of Souls. And basically, in his work, he says he's had about 7,000 clients, and they, under deep hypnosis, like six-hour sessions, they recall not only a previous lifetime, like Brian Weiss's work, but a, the life between lives. And so just in the odd thing of my journey to his work, which... I catalog in the book Flipside and, and now the new one, It's a Wonderful Afterlife, um, Further Adventures in the Flipside. Um, basically, a friend of mine had passed away back in 1996, very close friend, 
And she started to visit me. And like anybody else, I thought, of course, I'm making this up. This must, but the things that were happening were so unusual and beyond anything I'd read or heard or seen or experienced. And, you know, literally, she took me once to her place, which seemed to be like in another universe or another galaxy. And I had that experience that sometimes people have an out-of-body experience where you feel like you're traveling somewhere. And in this particular case, she took me, I was in New York City working on a, a talk show. Uh, and late one afternoon, just, you know, sat down to rest and closed my eyes. And the next thing I know, I was flying out of my body and I felt myself zooming through space. I'd never had an experience like that, but I could see stars going by and then suddenly I made a sharp turn and I went through something that seemed like a wormhole. I can only describe it as that because I was bouncing around. And then when I came out on the other side, I was in some other realm. And the reason I say it's another universe is because instead of going forward or going up as it, the experience was, I was now going left to right. It's, I don't know if I can describe it. And at the end of that speedy trip, I stopped, and there was my friend, Luana Anders, an actress here in L.A. for many, many years. And uh, she opened her eyes as if to say, you were looking for me. You were wondering where I am. Here I am. And at that moment, some guy honked his horn, big truck horn, outside my window. But the weird thing was, before I, be I came, became conscious, I traveled the route backwards. So like a rubber band pulling me. But I saw it again, you know, going, coming back through space, seeing New York coming at, at me at a great, you know, incredible rate of speed. And then suddenly I was sitting up in my bed. And at that point, I thought, okay, I haven't taken any drugs that <laughs> I'm aware of. Um, you know, I haven't taken any cold medicine. Uh, but, you know, definitely I had some kind of an experience that was otherworldly. And instead of just setting aside like I had my whole life, other worldly experiences, seeing ghosts, stuff like that. I just set that aside. It just wasn't important to me. And then I thought, okay, well, what is this? And before she died, she had said to me, um, I have this recurring dream that I'm in a classroom. Um, everyone's dressed in white. They're speaking a language I've never heard before, but somehow I completely understand. And at the time, I thought, okay, well, that's got to be the morphine drip. She yeah. had cancer and stuff. Um, but when she passed away, her close friend called me up, happens to be a medium, lives in Hawaii. She said, oh, I had this great dream about Luana last night. She was in a classroom, and everyone was dressed in white. She looked really happy. And I thought, classroom? What? What are we talking about? And then I mentioned it to the nurse who had been taking care of her, and she said, oh, my God, that was her recurring dream, this classroom in some other dimension. And it felt, so for a while, I thought, well, how weird. There's universities in life. How do I get in there? And then I started picking up these story of James von Prague wrote a book about talking to heaven. And in the second half of the book, he starts talking about universities over there. I thought, well, that's trippy. And then I picked up a copy of Michael Newton's Journey of Souls. And there, one of the clients under deep hypnosis was saying, I'm in a classroom and everyone is dressed in white. And at that point, I thought, well, you know, if you want to signpost for what you're supposed to do in life, this is kind of one of those flashing lights, the neon lights, and go this way. So I got to a point in my career where you had know, cameras and stuff, and I just thought, well, I'm going to start interviewing people about this. 
and I'll start with Michael Newton. He was retired, wasn't doing any interviews, um, and but I tracked him down, and he was doing a conference in Chicago, and they, they said I could film the conference, and then after talking to him for a while, he realized you know, what my intention was. My motivation was really just to discover something. And so he gave me his last interview, as he calls it. He's fine, just retired. Um, And then I started filming people under deep hypnosis. And one of the first interviews I did was with his wife. Because here's a guy who was saying that over 30 years of his practice, without telling anybody about it, he had perfected this deep hypnosis process of allowing people to direct where they wanted to go under hypnosis over a five and six hour session. And they all kind of went to the same place and they all kind of saw the same things, not the exact same outward things, but the inner things. So everybody, and and then he wrote this book and it said, you know, out of these 7,000 people, everyone said the same thing. We've all got a spirit guide, somebody guides us through all our lifetimes. We've all got these classrooms uh, that we attend in the afterlife on a continue, continuous basis, that part of our energy is always back there. In fact, the majority of our energy is always back there. Only a certain amount comes here to each incarnation. And the reason for that is because the circuits would blow because there's so much energy. That's what people say. So I'm, I've been a journalist and a reporter, and so I, you know, I kind of knew the rules of the game of reporting things. You know, try not to inject yourself into the reporting like George Plimpton did, you know, if you remember. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they offered me my own session. They said, you want to try one? And I thought, well, I can't because then I'm no longer reporting. But I thought, well, what, what a better way to prove this wrong? Because I, I was, a, I'm, you know, I was a skeptic like anybody else. Of course, I'm a skeptic in the true sense of the word, which is I don't believe in the prevailing school of thought, whatever it is. My feeling is you got to show me the evidence for whatever your proposition is, you know, whether it's religion or whatever it is. Just show me the show me the work. Let me see what I can come up with. So I did a session, and I was determined that I was not going to see or say anything that the hypnotherapist might lead me to. Right? That's that's always been the complaint about hypnosis that's leading. But in this case, I hadn't come to a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist with any problem. So I, I didn't have a presenting problem, you know, something that I was trying to cure or affect or fix. I was really just trying to prove that this couldn't be true and that I couldn't be hypnotized. And, you know, as it turns out, I don't know if you've ever done hypnosis, have you? No, no, actually I haven't. Okay, well, maybe we'll do some today. Okay. But basically <laughs> what we've what I've learned, you know, again, I'm reporting, what I've learned is hypnosis is is really more like a guided meditation. If you've ever done yoga, you know, you ever had somebody do an exercise with you where they tell you to picture yourself sitting on a river or, you know, somewhere relaxing. And then they start asking you questions. Where are we? What do you sense? What do you see? Um, And those questions, if you sort of listen (laughs) to what somebody's saying, you know, a friend can ask you these questions. It really can. You know, you can make this strong suggestion, like we're not going to go to any unhappy memory or any painful memory. Uh, sometimes that's key because, of course, people, you know, have traumas in their lifetimes that are just simmering under the surface, you know. And, of course, if that's what you're going to talk about during your session, you won't really get very far because you're just going to talk about that. But in these sessions, and I've filmed 25 so far, 
since that, you know, since that initial uh, session that they offered me, I sell 25 and pretty much every single one, um, they've had the same, same signposts, same hallmarks, the same journeys. And uh, I'll get back to mine in a second, but the new book, so that was what the basis of the, of the book and film flip side were about, about this research. Right. But then in the new uh, book, because I spoke to some scientists in, in the interim and they were saying, well, you know, hypnosis is not really a valid scientific tool because of all the problems, you know, the, the doctor wants to cure somebody and the person comes with a problem that they're trying to affect. So, you know, maybe that's causing the imagination to create these lives or they argued the Carl Jung uh, concept that maybe there's some kind of a pool of unconsciousness or pool of consciousness that happens after we die, it kind of goes somewhere and, and perhaps we're picking up on other people's lives. That's the, the theory. Right. However, as I pointed out to them, these scientists that I talked to, um, the University of Virginia, the, in terms of Newton's work, here you've got 7,000 people who've never met, who had never read any work about it, who are saying the same things about the afterlife. And since Newton's retired, he's trained thousands of hypnotherapists worldwide, and they have the same results. And I've interviewed a number of them. So if everybody's saying pretty much the same thing about the journey of souls in the afterlife, I mean consistently, no matter what their religion is, what their background is, where they're from, uh, what their point of view was before they walked into a session, I've seen it 25 different times. Where you know, And I've chosen the people that I've filmed because of their skepticism, because they're atheists or they're agnostics or they don't believe in the afterlife or they don't believe in hypnosis. That's why I chose them because I, you know, I wanted to see. So in my particular case, so they offered me my own session and I said, Oh, sure. Okay. I can prove that this is not true. <laughs> and, and I was really determined that if for four hours I said, I don't see anything, I was happy to do that. But in the, in the case of my session, I worked with Jimmy Quast, who's in Maryland, hypnotherapist, um, Eastern Hypnosis, I think, dot com is his, his uh, website. But Jimmy is a trainer for the Newton Institute, and so he worked with me. And uh, you know, basically, the process is they ask you some questions about your own lifetime, you know, where where you grew up, and they sort of you know put you in a calm place and ask you about what your house looked like where you grew up and where you slept and as a little kid stuff like that. And then they ask you, let's can we go back to your first memory, and then. You find yourself, I did anyway, uh, going back to memories of childhood, very clear because, of course, you're, very, you're in a calm and safe environment, so it's easy to access those. You know? So, for example, when I saw uh, at age 12 standing in the driveway of my home in Northbrook, Illinois, I, I accidentally cut my finger, and I could feel that pain and see the blood and then see my dad coming out you know, to rescue me. And that emotional feeling of, you know, at 12, oh, dad's going to save me. But also in my, my, my visual, I could see the cars in the driveways across the street, you know, 60, 1967, what kind of cars they were, stuff like that. So I was aware of the fact that I was accessing a, a real memory. Now, of course, 
even, you know, you've seen it in, in court cases. People, you know, are accessing a memory from their own lifetime, and then somebody else comes forward and says, no, no, that's not exactly what happened. This happened. Well, that, you know, memory does retain a lot of things, and, of course, it retains gunk as well. Or, you know, like your computer, when you save, you know, massive files, and then you're going through the file, and you're like, well, where did this come from? You know, this glitch. So I'm just, let's just say that it's a possibility that people are confabulating things, if possible. But when you get more than one person at the same, you know, event, then you can really examine it, okay? Right. So then the next process, after you go through your lifetime, they go back to your first memories, and usually they'll ask, so now let's go back to the time you were in the womb. And when I hear them say that, I always think to myself, why isn't this person laughing? You know, because how could you possibly remember that? How could you, how could you elucidate what that feeling was like? But they do. And they talk about their parents' feelings towards them. They talk about the emotion of being in the womb and feel, hearing their mother's heartbeat and, and talking about that experience and, and sometimes revealing new information. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you examine these things, if new information is coming forward, right, something that you're not consciously aware of, but that you can examine later, but then you hear it in a session. So somebody might say, you know, my mother was really upset about having a baby because her husband, my dad, had been off in the war and and she she didn't want to have a baby by herself. These are things that the the client then, you know, checks with their mom. Like, Mom, you know, I had this experience. So in my case, um, I said... You know, he said, what's your first memory? And I said, I'm being born. And I had the visual of that and the experience of that, of being in a cold hospital room in Evanston, Illinois. But I could see the doctor's face clearly. I mean, clearly as if he was standing in front of me. I can recall it right this moment with, you know, the mask on and that weird metal thing they used to wear in the 50s, you know, above his forehead for light and, uh, and the hazel eyes. And now what was interesting is I was aware that he was holding me up by my feet and smacking me, you know, <laughs> get to breathe or whatever. But I was looking at him right side up, okay? So I was aware of that while I was recounting this. And, and I said, my father's not here, but he's on his way here. Now, that was a detail I called my mom later and said, you know, where was dad when I was born? I, I assumed he was in the waiting room. And she said, no, no, he was driving driving there. So, you know, it was an accurate memory, at least for myself, of that particular event. So then they say, let's go to a previous lifetime that has some significance to this lifetime. That's what they ask. So whatever comes up, you know, um, you have to examine it, right? Because, you know, you'd be surprised when it comes up. Significant memory, significant to this lifetime, you see, so what you find out in this research is that we choose our lifetimes. When we go back to our between-life realm after we die, we reconnect eventually, not necessarily right away. Maybe we stick around, we hang out with our friends, maybe we're checking out the world outside of this realm. But eventually, we get back to this place of unconditional love where we really connect with our soul group or other people that we've normally incarnated with. And Newton 
you know, did a study of it, he, he found that the average was 15 people in a soul group, and anywhere from 3 to 25 is what he normally got. And these are people that when you look around the room, you're like, oh, there's, you know, Uncle Pete, and oh, there's that person who, like, punched me when I was in grade school. You realize that they all have a, have a role, that they play the role. You know, they have their own journey and stuff to do in their life, of course. But, you know, there you are examining who these people are. And generally, when you meet somebody that you feel like you've known them forever, well, there's a possibility you have met them before somewhere, perhaps in some other role or some other lifetime. So in that process of of examining that, you know, where you are in this other realm, um, and as I did, I... I went back to a previous lifetime that had some significance to this lifetime, okay? And what I, again, I was there, he was saying, so what do you see? And I kept saying, I don't see anything. And he'd say, look around. I'd say, I don't see anybody. I don't see anything. I'm seeing just darkness. And I was prepared to say that for four hours. But then he said, well, just look down. And that construct of a sentence for whatever reason, made me look down in my mind's eye, and I saw my feet in a creek, and I could see they were cut up bare feet, and I was then aware. He said, "Where, where are we? You know, what are you a man? Are you a woman?" They asked these neutral questions: Are you a man or a woman? Are you tall? Are you short? Are you are you wearing clothes? Are you, you know, whatever it is, this is day or night. And in that process, I saw myself as an American Indian. Okay, I laughed because you're you're conscious. Your conscious mind is laughing at you. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, oh, I'm standing in a creek and I'm you know I'm wearing uh buckskin and uh I've got long hair and um I'm an American Indian. And I'm laughing in my head, going, Oh come on, really? Is that what you're gonna come up with? That's your past life? Wow. <laughs> you know, I saw dances with wolves and you know I I, I must be you know, I'm a writer. I must be making this up. So my conscious mind is mocking me. Well, my subconscious mind is just speaking because that's that's what they ask. Just just allow your subconscious mind to speak, and you can judge it later. So then he asked, like, "Can we go to your your village?" And I said, "No, no, I don't really feel comfortable doing that right now." He said, "Why is that?" And then I saw they had all been murdered. And then I saw this village with like smoking ruins and blood everywhere and bodies. And, and sort of walking through that, and then I went to a teepee. I've never been to a teepee, so in this lifetime anyway, but I felt it in my hand. I felt the leather, and I opened up this teepee, and I saw this woman lying in the dirt with her throat cut and you know blood there, and I said, they've killed my wife and taken my son. And I said that with the emotion connected to that sentence. Easily the most difficult emotion I've ever experienced, even though it didn't happen in this lifetime. I felt it as if it had. And I thought, consciously, what the hell? Why would I, why would I create this if it, if it wasn't if somehow I was aware of it? I mean, this is such a difficult emotion. And then plus, there wasn't a son there. It was just, there was just a woman lying there in the dirt. But I connected. I said, that's my wife, and they've taken my son. And I sobbed for a while. And then uh, and then he said, um, who did this? And I said, you know, I thought consciously, I thought, oh, you're going to say the blue coats, you know, or, <laughs> or, you know, those nasty Americans. But I said, oh, it was the fucking Arab. 
Now, can I say fucking? I don't know. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> but uh, but I, I said it out loud, and even my brain laughed at that. My consciousness said, come on, you're on. We're in upstate New York, man. This is You're talking to your Sue. And he said, so what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a, I'm a shaman. I'm a holy man. Uh, he said, what's your name? And I said, it's it's uh, Wakantanka. No, I said Watanka. And he said, uh, Watanka, what's that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what that is. It sounds like, that's what it sounds like. And even then, I was thinking, oh, you know, dances with wolves, I know that a Tatanka is a buffalo. <laughs> you know, it was like I couldn't even come up with the right word. It was like I was avoiding saying Tatanka, but I said, Watanka. And and and, I, and then I said, you know, it, he said, why did the Huron attack you? And I said, because it was this is what happens when egos are involved. The chief said something. Their their leader said something about ours, and we had to retaliate, and it became this ugly thing. And this this is what happened. And I was also aware of that I had been out gathering medicine for the oncoming battle, and that's why I wasn't in the village. I was gathering the herbs that I was going to need to help heal, you know, the uh, warriors that they came back. So all I can tell you is six months later, when I, you know, I went online, I tried to research this and I thought, oh, this is silly. I can't, I can't find any of this information. And then I was at a funeral in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, a family member, and I was talking to a cousin of mine and I, and he said, I said, what have you been up to? He said, oh, I've been really connecting with, uh, this, this Sioux tribe. And I said, what? what? Since when? And he said they had actually made him an honorary member back when he was a teen. And he'd been uh, doing a lot of research into the particular tribe, the Lakota Sioux. And I thought, well, that's so odd because I had this, I, you know, I wanted to say, well, I was the Lakota Sioux. But I said, you know, I had this weird thing and I did a hypnosis thing and I saw myself as a Lakota Sioux holy man. He said, hold on, hold on, hold on. He said, what were you wearing? I said, buckskin. He said, tell me about your hair. I said, it was long. Um, and he said, did you did you have um, feathers? And I said, yeah. He said, were they up or were they down? I said, they were down. And he said, well, that means you were a holy man. And I said, oh, that's what I said I was, like a you know, medicine man. And he said, I said, well, then what is, what is, what Tonka mean? And he said, well, that's, that's what they called their holy man. Wakan Tonka means the great spirit. So that would have been your name. Um, and I said, well, hold on. What about this Huron thing? Why, how would the Huron and the Sioux have fought? And he said, you're sitting in a spot where they fought for 60 years. Oak Park, Wisconsin. So those are details, new information that I could not have gotten online. I could not have read it, heard it, seen it. This is this is what you know, modern medicine, let's call it that, calls memories under hypnosis. They call it cryptomnesia, meaning you know you heard it somewhere, or you saw it on a TV show, or something like that. And all I can say is those details aren't on a TV show. They're new information that I was able to then figure out what that was. And the reason I keep saying new information is because in this world of, of you know, the extra world, let's call it, ESP or whatever you want to call it, or near-death experiences, or even this conversation we're having right now, my argument is this. 
how do you know that I'm alive? How do you know that I'm here on the planet? Well, we make some assumptions. You're assuming that because you're talking to me, <laughs> I answer the phone, right? Yeah. That I must therefore be alive. Of course, we've all had the experience of talking to an airline or something like that, and we start talking, and they're like, "Please hold," you know. Yeah. So you know there are there is artificial intelligence. Let's say you're you know they're on the way to that, right? So you don't know that a robot's a robot. But in terms of everyday living, when you're talking to somebody on a cell phone, you really don't know they're alive, except for when they give you new information, stuff that couldn't be in your head, right? Right. Therefore, they're alive because of new information. So when you hear something from the afterlife that's new information, so if somebody has a near-death experience, even Dr. Alexander, Evan Alexander, you know, Proof of Heaven, he wrote that book, in his very profound near-death experience, he was given a tour of this other realm by his sister, or a woman that he didn't know, but but not until after the near-death experience did he discover that he had a sister who had died. He had been adopted, and then the family that eventually came forth with this information, he saw a photograph of the girl that had been a sister and recognized her as the woman who had given him this guided tour. New information. Colvin Burpo, that's the son of Todd Burpo, who, you know, the book... Heaven is for real. They made a movie about it. Greg Kinnear was in it. Yeah. In his session, even though he has a lot of hallmarks and signposts that people would find controversial, seeing Jesus, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, he meets his sister, who had died in childbirth, but the parents had never mentioned or never told him. So there's no use five. There's no way that he could have known that he had a sister who died in childbirth. But yet he met her over there. New information. When my dad passed away after a long bout with Alzheimer's, uh, he spoke to me and said, I'm experiencing indescribable joy. And then he had me write a note to my mother. And in the note, he mentioned a number of people who I've never heard of, never met. But she knew who they were. They were friends of his who had died in World War II. This is new information, you see. So it can't be that we're making it up. It can't be that we read it or heard it or saw it or it's cryptomnesia. It could only be that someone on the other side is communicating to us because they're still alive, you see? Right. So, so back to my session. So now at the end of my uh, Indian portion of my journey, my past life uh, memory, he said, uh, let's go to the last day of your life. And so I saw myself as this kind of shriveled human who had adopted the white man's ways, for lack of a better term. I was wearing like a floppy hat, and I was holding a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> uh, fire water. And oddly enough, I went to a, a Thanksgiving party a few years ago, and somebody brought forth a bottle of whiskey from 1840. You know, it had been passed down in their family. Yeah tasting it, you know, I had a memory of it. It's like, oh, okay. It it does. It tastes like really clear water with fire in it. I mean, unlike any whiskey I've ever tasted, you know, here. But anyway, um there I was with this empty bottle of whiskey and I was walking, I think it felt like maybe the Mississippi, some big, big muddy river, and I just walked into it and, and bobbed and, and you know, drowned myself. 
And the hypnotherapist said, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, and, you know, how do you feel about this? And I said, I just want to go home. I feel like my life is a shell. I'm a shell of who I was. They took everything from me, my family, my religion, my culture, my people. There's no point staying here anymore. I just want to go home. Now, as I said it, I was thinking, wow, that's great dialogue. I kind of like that. Yeah, that's an unusual thing to say. But this is at the start of my journey in this, you know, flip side world because I've filmed, you know, 25 other people. And I'd say more than 80% say at the point where they say, where do you want to go now at the end of your memory of your lifetime? They all say the same thing. I want to go home. Now, when I first heard it, when somebody said, I want to go home, my brain went, home? What are you talking about? You mean like Chicago? You know, you want to go back to your house where you grew up? Yeah. No, they want to go home. That, that's home, over there, or wherever you want to call it. Back there is home. Here is not home. Here is on stage or in the classroom or whatever you want to call it. We're, we're not home. We're somewhere else. Now, you and I have a different idea of what home is. But we can both agree home is like a place of what? What would you call home? Uh, it's a home where you can, uh, well, it's a place where you can take off your mask. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> take off your mask or maybe a place of comfort, security, yeah. Tender feelings. The other thing that people experience, and by the way, since the Flipside book, I started expanding the research into near-death experiences because I was finding that people had, and I was running into people who had near-death experiences, and then I'd say, hey, let's do a between-life session through a Newton-trained hypnotherapist. By the way, it's the newtoninstitute.com, and they have... You know, these people trained worldwide, and they're, I, the reason I recommend them is because they're trained in this particular alpine uh, traversing. You know what I mean? If you're going to go into the Alps, you want to go there with, or, you know, the Himalayas, you want to go with the Sherpa who's been there yeah. so they can guide you, you know, what you're looking for. And that's why I recommend them. And their their website, they have a searchable database. They're pretty much all in every continent and in every country now. And so, and depending, you know, you have to check to see how, you know, every it draws a certain type of person. You have to really get recommendations and talk to the person, talk to the therapist, see if you connect on some level. But that idea of, of you know, of being able to examine these choices in our lives is really profound. All right, so we'll go to the end of, so there I was, you know, floating down the river. And then he says, where do you want to go now? And I said, well, I want to go home. And I saw myself, you know, zipping through space. And as I came through space, I came up to like an event horizon. And in this horizon was like a white mist. And and then ultimately that mist turned into people. And I seemed to recognize them and they seemed to recognize me, even though I couldn't put a name to anyone except for my for lack of a better term, spirit guide, the, the person who's been overseeing all my lifetimes. But I had read about people that you have, so that was in my consciousness. But in this particular case, this fellow treated me as if I was an old pal coming home, not so much like a teacher, but more like, hey, you're here. How you doing? How you feeling? You okay? 
And then I said, you know, I think I need to go to the healing center. And then people, this is a very common thing. People talk about going to a place where you sort of reconnect with the energy that you left behind. And I literally sat in like a transporter room. That's what it felt like, uh, you know, because I've seen Star Trek and I felt all these lights sort of, you know, uh, imbuing me with energy. And so all the spots that were in pain from that lifetime as an American Indian were now being re reconnected with whoever the higher Richard self. And, and then he said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, well, I want to go see, um, I want to go see the Lana <laughs> because this was part of my journey. I was trying to see if I could find my friend, Luana. And I went to a classroom and I saw her sitting in the back of the classroom. And, uh, it was weird because she was like 20, you know, I met her when she was 30. But she was about 20 and had a ponytail, and she was looking at me like, what the hell are you doing here? And I was interrupting the class. So that was that construct, um, you know, of being in a classroom. And, you know, here, if I'm, if I'm creating this environment, right, if I'm imagining it, I, you would think you'd have, you know, like music and angels and something wonderful. But instead I'm, I'm walking into this classroom and everyone in the class turns around and like, who are you and why are you interrupting our class? And then the hypnotherapist said, where are we? I said, well, it's a classroom in healing and how these people help healers, doctors, um, shamans, medicine men on earth in the healing process. They help them affect healing on a client. And, he said, how does that work? And I started to talk about it, and everyone in the class has like, turned. The teacher's looking at me with his arms folded. Like, really? Are you going to stand here in our classroom and have a conversation with someone? And my friend Luana was looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, I bet, you know, I traveled all this distance. You know, I felt like a, you know, an obligation to speak. So I said, you know, look, um, what they do here is when a person is goes into the hospital or goes to see the doctor, the doctor subconsciously, obviously, calls upon the healing light of the universe to help affect the cure, right? Some kid in the class turned and looked at me and said, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty weird because <laughs> here I am getting chewed out, you know, somewhere in deep space, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, he basically turned and said, you know, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And I said, I even said, and the therapist, you know, the, this guy is like challenging me, and he's right, of course. I'm, I'm simplifying it, but basically, because of course everybody signs up for a different journey, and you may sign up to experience an illness, to experience an illness so you can get through it, to be healed by it, or to not be healed by it, so you can experience that energy so that perhaps in a future lifetime you might be a healer or a doctor because you've understood the energy. Of course, the best doctors are the ones who really understand the illness they're treating, as we know. And this goes to a really deeply profound, um, you know, sort of revelation, I think, uh, at least to my, my pea brain, that, you know, when people sign up for lifetimes, difficult lifetimes, they do so because... They want to experience the energy of that difficulty. So it's like the stones in your path literally turn into golden nuggets because you've gone through them or over them or past them or beyond them. And um, 
I give you so then you know I I filmed a number of people doing this and I've had you know experiences. But for example, a friend of mine who had read Flipside flew out to LA said you know I really want to try this. I want to check it out and I have some things I want to examine. I was like oh great you know I've known her since you know high school. And on the way out, she said a couple of things. You know, my dad and uh, my dad molested me. Is what she said. And I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I, didn't know, I had no idea. You know, I knew her dad. Um, yeah. And she said, and my brother OD'd. Uh, you know, uh, died of a drug overdose. As she put it was that she agreed to this lifetime so that she could help her father examine the negativity of his actions. She did it out of compassion for him, as weird as that sounds. Okay? Yeah. That's not for everybody. You know, that, that's, that's not going to be a, it's not going to be for everybody. And it's not, but in her particular case, in her journey, in her path, that's what she said, that she understood that she had an agreement with her father before coming to this lifetime, the energy of her father, let's call it that, um, to examine that with him. And in that moment, of course, was able to forgive him and lose that energy of that that she'd been holding on to her whole life. And then secondarily, she talked to her brother, and he explained to her that he had signed up to examine the energy of excess and that he had done so. And the hypnotherapist said, oh, I'm so sorry that he wasn't able to fulfill learning from that. And she said, no, actually, that's what he signed up for. He wanted to go through the whole process to examine it. So the only way I can sort of put it in, and try not to put it in a sim too simplistic way, but if you can imagine that each lifetime is a stage play that we agree to say lines and we put on costumes and we go out there on the stage and we do our best to be the bad guy, the good guy, the hero, the victim, whatever it is, when we examine these things, once we're done and we get off stage, now we go back to this kind of wonderful uh, backstage party where we sort of examine our lifetimes and how we did. There's a great line at the end of uh, the television show American Horror Story where Jessica Lange has now returned, has been killed, and she's returned to sort of the freak show. And uh, Kathy Bates is there, and, and Kathy Bates is somebody she had killed during the show. And Jessica Lang's character says, well, why am I here? Why aren't I being punished? And Kathy Bates says, does, 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 does the actress who played Desdemona go after the actor who played Othello on stage after the play is done? No. You celebrate what a great performance you've done. It's a it's an unusual perspective, and it's not for everybody, <laughs> but I can tell you it's consistent with every session I've observed and every um, case that I've studied. In the research that Newton has done in the 7,000 cases over 30 years, he says that there are people that come along in, in these sessions who've had um, like particularly difficult lives where they seem to always show up and create chaos, serial killers, let's say, as an example, right? Yeah. And that that when they get back to, the, because people don't die. So if you start with that premise, people don't die, but they create all this negativity around harming people, which is just, you know, screws everybody up. 
So when they get back to their council, and everybody appears to have a council anywhere from um, three to 12 people that they're like wise elders that sort of keep an eye on, you know, your progression. Um, everybody has one. And, and in those sessions, you know, you examine why you did things and you, you may experience the negativity that you engendered in your lifetime. One example, there's the um, author, David Bennett. He wrote a, a book called Voyage of Purpose. I interviewed him. It's on YouTube. You can, you know, just search for David Bennett and Rich Martini and you'll find this interview, um, which is a chapter in the new book, It's a Wonderful Afterlife, where David talks about he was a science officer aboard this ship and he had a near-death experience. He fell, they, they fell, he fell out of a Zodiac and got crushed and, and died. And in the death memory, he saw a number of things, including a soul group, like three or four individuals who came to him that he felt unconditional love when he connected with them. And then they went to his life review, and he reviewed things from this lifetime that he had done. And one of the things he remembered was um, like a bar fight in Texas where a guy had come on to him in this straight bar, gay guy had come on to him, and he had freaked out, you know, inappropriate response. But everybody in the bar then had ganged up and beat the shit out of this guy. But he experienced that memory from the guy's point of view, from the, being the guy who got hurt. And he felt all the anger and hatred. He felt that. It was just made him nauseous because he experienced that negativity that he created, you see? Mm -hmm. And then he also experienced something really wonderful um, and a very insignificant, what he thought to be an insignificant moment, but it was this little old lady that used to come into a store that he worked at and how she never smiled, and he took it upon himself to try to get her to smile and, you know, went to all these different machinations to make that happen. And once she did smile, he felt the waves of positive energy that came from that act. So the point is, when we're talking about sin, you know, talking about crimes against humanity and all that stuff, you do find that people experience their crimes back there. So I don't know if that's going to prevent people from doing them, knowing that one day you're going to have to stand in front of judgment and re-experience everything you've done to that person. I mean, that doesn't say a lot for, you know, those guys who got tortured or, you know, snipers. Or In fact, there's a very interesting um, case I mentioned in Flipside where there was, speaking of snipers, you know, yeah. there's Kyle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was his journey. It was his journey, and we know, and, like, you know, the poor guy got killed for, you know, for whatever reason, but that was his journey, and, you know, and, and his his uh, his work in this lifetime was he did a good job of doing what he was tasked to do. Let's just call it that from a stage perspective. But there was a, there was a sniper that the L.A. Times dubbed the Marlboro Man. This is a guy who was also a very successful sniper, but every time he pulled the trigger, he saw the lifetime of the person he was killing flash before his eyes. So needless to say, that created a lot of stress in his life. And when he came back, he went through severe PTSD, and he, you know, he's, he's suffering right now. There's the guy who experienced the life of the person he was taking from birth, you know, marriage, kids, happiness, right to when they're deaf. That kind of odd energy. So in a weird way, he was having that past life review 
you know, yeah. while it was happening, you see. Yeah. Um, and then there's one other sniper I know, um, a guy named David Park. He's in New York State. He did a couple of tours, and he was also very good at what he did. But once he got out, he realized he had this gift for healing people under hypnosis. So he's become a hypnotherapist in New York State. And uh, very interesting cat. But, you know, he's, he went from a guy taking lives from a sniper's point of view to a guy who's saving lives. Those are three different examples of, of life choices. And, and it's very hard. We do it every day. But it's very, very hard to be non-judgmental about a person's life choice because you can't really, well, how does it work? How do we choose our lives? Good question. So in the research, what it shows, and like I say, I've filmed 25 sessions, and I'm talking about 7,000 cases that Michael Newton had, and my own experience of seeing a life planning session where you're sort of with your soul group and you're discussing, who am I going to be? And other people obviously have to participate. Who wants to play my mom and dad? And, you know, they might go, oh, I don't see any hand going up. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, your friends are like, um, you know, dude, I really don't think we're going to do this again. Or somebody comes to you and says, you know, I really want you to play the alcoholic father. And you go, no. And so this is the weird thing about this research, that we have free will. It's not based on karma. You say, no, I don't want to play the alcoholic father. I've been doing that for so many lifetimes for you. I'm tired of it. Honestly, the whole Viking era thing it just drove me nuts. <laughs> I just don't want to do it again. And then they, your friends say, oh, come on, you're so good at it. You're such a good actor. If you don't play that role, I will never learn the thing that I'm supposed to learn. I will never go the distance that I'm supposed to go. Hmm. And you then decide, okay, all right, I'll do it again. Now, if you can conceive for a second in a lifetime, it's like a stage play, but... Also in lengths, you know, when you go into a theater, watch a movie, it's only a couple hours. So, um, and this is just a little casual thing I've been studying, which is I ask people, so, you know, how long did that feel like? And in one of my sessions, a woman said she recounted a uh, lifetime. She lived to be 25, and she was the captain of an English ship. I was able to find the ship, and uh, she had worked for the East India company back in 1610 and I was able to find her name and uh, the street she lived on in the Bailey records that are online from England from that era and so she lived this whole life and the ship was boarded by pirates and she was murdered she was a he saw that she was a teacher in one of the classrooms and the class was waiting for her so I thought that was really unusual because she said it felt like those 25 years that she had lived was like the same amount of time it was to go out and smoke a cigarette and come back into class. Hmm. So time, of course, you know, it's a relative thing. Once you're outside of Earth time or galaxy time or our construct of time, and I'm sure you've heard this before, a lot of people say, well, time doesn't exist in the afterlife. I don't find that to be the case. Time exists. It's just different. We, you do see old souls over there, and you see young souls over there, and young souls eventually become older souls. There is a linear process. You know, it's not all existing at the same time, which people will tell you. You know, quantum physics will tell you, et cetera, et cetera. 
that's just not in the research. Whether, whether my research is wrong, it's a good possibility, but I've just not found that to be the case. There is linear time. It's just on a different scale. So you do have, you know, these old souls and young souls. Anyway, and so um, should we go back to my session? There I was in my classroom <laughs> insulting, you know, the teacher. And uh, Now, I've been four sessions because I, I thought, you know, two years later, this is what happens. And two years later, after my session, very profound, you know, I transcribed it, I examined it, I, I filmed it, you know. Even so, two years later, I started going, oh, come on, this guy must have made some part of this up. This can't possibly all be accurate. I, you know, I must have, you know, whatever. And so I did another session with a different hypnotherapist out here in California, Claremont, Scott DeTamble, lightbetweenlives.com. He's really excellent. Um, and Scott uh, did a session with me, and it was like, when we started, it was like the gate, I felt like the back door had been left open, and I was waiting for myself to return. You know, like that little 10-minute cigarette break. You know, I'd gone and lived two, you know, two years, but really, for, for those folks over there, I was like, where have you been? Come on, let's go back to what we were talking about. I just picked up where I left off. And like I said, I've had four sessions, and in those, one of the sessions, I went back to that classroom because now here it is, you know, years, now it's four, four or five years after the initial classroom interruption, and Luana took me to the classroom and apologized to the teacher on my behalf. And so that was weird. Here's my friend taking me into this classroom, and she begins by saying, you know, this is my friend Richard, and he's been writing this book and, you know, doing this research, and, he, you know, he's, he just wanted to apologize for the interruption of your class. And I'm looking at this teacher who's looking at me like, uh-huh, all right, all right. And so then I was able to ask him some questions. You see, because I had been appropriately introduced as opposed to the jerk who just walked into the classroom and started talking. She had done this introduction, and then I, I asked them a number of questions about the process of um, healing, in, you know, from over there to here and, and why, you know, people get healed and stuff like that. And, and I'm jumping around, but it's okay. Why not? Um, David Bennett, remember I was just mentioning, he was the guy who, you know, had the near-death experience. In his near-death experience, there was a bit of new information, and that was he saw that he would survive cancer in the future, like 20 years in the future. When he came back from his near-death experience, he told his wife about it, and she was so disturbed by what he was saying that she slapped him, like to snap him out of it. Uh, and he was saying very well. He never told anybody. Yeah. And then ten years later, he was doing like a guided meditation somewhere in, in Arizona, like in a class, and it all came back. But then it wasn't for another ten years after that where he was living in upstate New York and was in the doctor's office. He's feeling, you know, some pain in his neck and et cetera, et cetera. And then in walked this new doctor to tell him that he was dying of cancer. But it was the doctor from the memory, you see? So 40 years earlier, he had seen this doctor come into the room and say these words, you have six months to live. But 
So when the guy came into the room, he went, oh, my God, there it is. There's the doctor. And he said, you know, I knew what he was going to say, but I, I didn't want to interrupt him because I wanted him to say it. And so he said those words. And, of course, David said. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Actually, I survived this cancer. And the doctor said, actually, no, you're not going to survive this cancer. I'm just telling you, you have six months, you're in denial, get your affairs in order. And David said, I'm not in denial. I, I, anyway, I'm not going to die. It's okay. And so he went through the treatment, you know, did the treatment that he was supposed to and, and did some holistic treatments as well, uh, some spiritual stuff and all that stuff. And he's, he's okay. He's fine. And um, he wrote this book, Voyage of Purpose. So, I mean, I, the reason I bring it up is because that's when you have new information come forth, you know, something that happens in the future or something that happens that you can't, aren't aware of and, you know, there's no logical explanation for you to be aware of it, then I think that's, it's worth examining. And the same thing with these, with these many cases, um, you know, once I was, once I got out of my first session, you know, I was like, I felt like I'd taken the red pill. You know, the whole world had shifted. I suddenly, you know, saw the planet from a different perspective. And then, I, you know, people started contacting me. And I've been filming sessions now for, like I say, the past five, six years. Um, I got a call from, I got a, a, you know, Facebook message from somebody who I've never met before. Her name is Jennifer Schaefer. Uh, Jennifer Schaefer, two F, I think it's S C H. Yeah. Dot com. She's a medium. 
and she works with the FBI as a profiler, helping people with missing person cases. And she contacted me and said, oh, I'm a big fan of Flipside, and you know, I live down the block from you. She's in Manhattan Beach, and you know, if you ever want to have coffee, so I actually went and interviewed her, did a three-hour interview because I thought, well, this is another way into this world. Here's somebody who's giving you uh, direct responses about particular questions. Woman in Canada who contacted me and said, you know, I don't, I can't go to sleep unless I hear your voice. I thought, what? You know, and she's a like, you know, a very like normal, regular person living in Canada, as far as I can tell. And she listens to me talk about the flip side. And she says it somehow is helping her process information. It's like I'm talking about this stuff it, like somebody like with a screwdriver loosening screws in the filters that keep this information out. And somehow, um, so anyway, there's I have about 10 hours of me doing book talks on YouTube. <laughs> So, you know, and then my books are, uh, I think they're 10 hours each of me talking. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You could spend a week. Just... Are we supposed to know about these things that we've chose? For no, our... and don't tell anybody. Okay. In fact, make sure, make sure you coded <laughs> this podcast because, yeah. God forbid, the people will know. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, yes, I think that's a good question. But, you know, then really, you know, parse it. Break it down. If if our other side, right, the you know spiritual world, um, isn't better, isn't worse, it's just different. Like walking through a door, and so you've got people on the other side who need help. They need help. We need help over here. We know that. But there's people over there that need help, and partially it's because they're. They're trying to connect with their loved ones, and they can't, or they're having a hard time, or whatever. And so these methods, these keys that allow us to change change the filters in our brains, which is kind of what that's what um, neuroscientists are saying now. Uh, Dr. Mario Beauregard, I interviewed him in a book. He wrote a book called Brain Wars. And Dr. Grayson from the University of Virginia talks about it. A wonderful talk, by the way, called Is Consciousness Created by the Brain? It's on YouTube, and Dr. Grayson gives it. It's about an hour long. And he cites, you know, medical evidence of how, of what we're talking about here, that there's filters on the brain somehow that prevent us from seeing all this information. But because of particular events that happen, and we don't know why, or science doesn't know why, Suddenly, people are able to access them. Sometimes, Alzheimer patients who are who should be brain dead, they you know when they do an autopsy, their brain shouldn't have been able to give them information. But like a few minutes or hours or days before they die, they suddenly recall everything about their lifetime, as if the filters have been unscrewed. You see. Yeah. So, if you want to just you know pull that question apart, is this information should it be uh, reveal. I think it's always been there, and it's just a society has had like an unusual reaction to this information for the past, let's say, you know, two thousand, ten thousand years, which is either the stake, you know, what's her what's her face, Joan of Arc, put her on the burner, yeah. or dunking, severe dunking, right back in Salem, you know, um, heresy, heretics beheadings, 
you know, burnings, I mean, all that stuff. You've got people in Saudi Arabia getting beheaded every day for what's considered heretical words. If you can really get your mind around that, that a word or a group of words in a sentence together could, you know, make you lose this lifetime. I mean, the good news is we don't die. The bad news is it's a lot of work to get here, you know, and there's a reason for you to be here, and there's a reason for you to, to hang on to being here, and there's a reason to do things because you're going to help other people by being here. So don't be in such a hurry to get to the other side, my point. But I, I don't know. I think the answer to your question is within the question itself. You know, should we be talking about these things? Of course we should because, you know what, the planet's on a collision course with itself. And once people realize that we reincarnate, then maybe they'll leave behind fresh water, fresh air, and fresh food for even our return. Forget about our kids. Forget about our grandkids. It's our own return. We're coming back. Wouldn't you want to come back and have like a clean glass of water to drink? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then it's imperative that people talk about this stuff because, you know, we can see, you can, you know, you can see it out the window that, you know, the earth is having a hard time with us right now when we don't act like we're ever going to be back here. And so therefore, you know, it's not only just speculative stuff about the journey of the soul. It's, it's trying to save the dang planet. You know, it really is. It's, it's trying to say, even if what I'm saying is not true, you know, let's just allow that to be the case. The reason I'm saying it is important because we've got to find a way to, you know, come back here. Otherwise, we're going to have to go pick some other planet to be on. How boring. I kind of like the Earth. How does, how does this all work for um, religion and people that are involved in different religions? Well, it's a good question. I'm, I'm always I'm fond of saying to my Buddhist friends, you know, uh, if you once you examine Buddhism, and I, that's my friend who passed away, Luana, was a Buddhist, and so initially, when I heard about these classrooms in the afterlife, I thought, well, if I want to get into that classroom, I better figure out how she got in there. And I thought, you know, maybe it's from Buddhism. So I studied Buddhism, and I you know went to Tibet, and I made documentaries there. I went with Robert Thurman. He also appears in, in the book. You know, he's Uma's dad, who was a Tibetan monk. And I find that Buddhism is a fearless philosophy in terms of living and stuff like that. But it basically is not a religion. Right. You know, by definition, a religion, and I don't want to offend anybody, but by definition, a religion is a belief in a higher power. And they just that's just not part of their tenets, um, as the Lama calls it. You know, they have a non-theistic religion, which is like saying atheism, you know. Um, so even the word religion is so weighted down by history that it becomes this block between, in our brain, between science and religion. And there is no, I, I, still, I don't see the block anymore. I see it all as part of the same exploration. You know, science is trying to examine how we got here, why we're here. What's going on? Um, the fundamental difference, though, I think, in this research, because what I'm talking about is, you know, just, just to, to put a pin on it, 
this research really talks about stuff that's not part of any religion, okay, um, as, as far as I can tell on the planet. All of the religions sort of talk about, the ones that talk about reincarnation, they, you know, Hindu and Buddhism, they kind of, they have a belief that um, reincarnation has to do with karma, you know, sin or something that you've, you know, done past actions. It just means action, action in Sanskrit. And that, you know, depending how you've been, you're going to be forced to have a, a particular next lifetime. Well, that's just not in the evidence. I'm sorry, in the research. Because you've got people saying um, they choose their lifetimes and they can say no. So that sort of pushes that to the side. And what they also find that we find in this research is that between lives, we're fully conscious, which no religion believes. They all kind of point to the fact that we're conscious here, we can attain consciousness, and that in between lives we're not quite, you know, it's more like a wisp of smoke that kind of bounces around until karma dictates where we're going to show up. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm simplifying, but don't we have to? <laughs> and, you know, this is an interesting concept because when, when I'm interviewing people in the afterlife, let's just call it that, I'm talking to somebody under deep hypnosis, and I'm asking, can I ask your spirit guide some questions about, you know, what's God? What or who is God? That was a question that came up in a session. This was a, uh, a filmmaker who was success, very successful producer who was a skeptic who didn't believe in God and had asked the question uh, as part of, you know, uh, her preparation for the session, almost as a joke, what or who is God? You know, if I can get to that answer, then I'm, you know, it was worth it. And so in her session, she had this really profound discussion with her spirit guide who seemed kind of annoyed that we were bothering him. But he said, oh, you humans always feel the need to answer these questions. Um, let's just put it this way. God is beyond the capacity of the human brain to comprehend. It's just not physically possible. And when he said that, I was thinking, okay, well, is he ducking the question, or is he saying, like, like a processor in a computer, it's too much information. What does the processor do? It freezes. You know, it can't accept all that information. Okay, that's the possibility. Then he said, however, you can experience God by opening your heart to everyone and to all things. And at first I thought, oh, that's a very simplistic sentence. But when you break it down, you know, uh, you want to experience God. You know, if you're talking to somebody who lives in the Kalahari Desert about swimming pools, they look at you like you're crazy. They can't know what it's like to be in a pool of water because they've been looking for water their whole life. So describing a pool of water is really hard to do. But to jump into a pool of water, well, then you can experience it. And by experiencing something, then you know it, right? Right. So that's what I got from that. Okay, how do you experience God by opening your heart to everyone and all things? Well, opening your heart, I mean, what does that mean? That means dropping all judgment. Because if you're open, your heart is open to the guy pointing a gun at you. Your heart is open to the guy who ran over your foot. Your heart, if your heart is true, you know, if you can, it's very difficult, of course, come on, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're standing in line and you're, you know, trying to get to where you're going. It's very hard to open your heart to everybody and all things. Uh, only a few monks, you know, and maybe a few nuns that I've seen can do it. But 
if you want to experience God, open your heart to everything, everyone, and to all things. I thought that was interesting, too, because that is also in the research, that everything is imbued with the same energy that is in our creation, in physical human creation, things, chairs, tables, whatever. They have their own uh, right to exist, but they exist under themselves. You know, atoms all agreeing to be a chair, all atoms all agreeing to be a wall, atoms all agreeing to be a tree. You know, looking at things from a different perspective, I think, is helpful. I've started to call trees lungs, because what are trees? There are lungs, you know, they're, they create oxygen for us. They take the carbon dioxide, uh, you know, whatever, carbon dioxide. Uh, is that right? Carbon dioxide. They, yeah. they suck up our, what we breathe out. You know, you think of oxygen as a, as a, uh, a fluid. Think of it as, a, as water. You know, oxygen is in various forms. Water is in, you know, it can be frozen, it can be, you know, gas, it can be a solid. Well, I think oxygen is the same way. It's this thing that we can't see, right? right? But it's in our lungs, and we're and it's move and moves. It functions like water does, the way you know, wind and and the way the movements, the waves of wind, let's say. So that idea that seeing oxygen as this thing that we need to breathe, you know, it's just another perspective. But of course, once you start seeing oxygen as this thing you have to swim in. You start thinking about, you know, maybe I shouldn't be like polluting it. You know, maybe I shouldn't be, you know, filling it up with these noxious gases, you know, because it, it is what I have to breathe. Anyway, looking at trees as lungs, and they kind of mirror, you know, the, the structure of the lungs, you know, the branches and all that stuff. You know, it's sort of looking at things from a different perspective, trying to open your heart to all things. So reeling it all back in, sorry to, to go so far afield, but reeling it back into the question of religion. I think, you know, the, the fundamental thing about religion is belief, right? Right. It's the word people use. It's the difference between I believe and I know. And I just feel that you don't have to believe. You can know. That belief is implied that it may or may not exist or may or may not happen. Knowing is examining things based on eyewitness accounts. You know, is our eyewitness accounts evidence? Well, we know how that works, and, you know, some people get it wrong. And, you know, take a car accident, for example, and you're in the courtroom and you have 100 eyewitnesses, and, and every single one of them is slightly different. But they all can agree on something that an accident happened you know, that these events did happen, they did occur. So that takes you out of the realm of belief. I mean, I guess you could say, I believe in an accident happened based on this evidence. So, so when, so, and then, you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to um, in any way dismiss or, or uh, reduce the importance of belief, because of course it's what gets people through the day. But what I found in this research is that it underlines, enhances, and makes stronger the stuff that I read in religions. So after I took the red pill, you know, after I saw the, the planet as this place that's interconnected, and then I went back and I started reading what the Bible had to say, you know, not so much the, the earlier accounts, you know, the 
all the rules and regulations, but more like around what Jesus had to say. And then I started seeing what he was talking about in a different perspective. I am the way. I am the light. What's the light? Well, there's this healing light of the universe. Um, another example, the Holy Trinity. You know, not to step on anyone's toes, but the Holy Trinity, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is the way I heard it growing up. Then they changed that to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've always had, you know, the Father being God, you know, a guy sitting on a chair, and the Son being, you know, Jesus, and then this dove that sort of flaps around between the two of them, right? That's the Holy Trinity. Well, if you go to the original Aramaic, you know, the language of the Bible, and Greek, you find that the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, really is a word called pneuma in Greek, which means breathe, you know, pneumatics. You could also say it means soul, but it means breathe. And also spiros was the word they used, and that means to breathe, as we know. So when you think of the Holy Trinity as the Father, okay, the creator or creators, or whatever that is of, of how the, the universe is created, how you know we're here on the planet, and the Son representing humankind, okay, so you've got Father, Source, and then people, and then the thing that goes between them is consciousness. That's the breath that that flows between the two. It's always there, the breathing between source and people. We don't always, you know, we cannot, we aren't always aware of it, of course, but we are at some points, you know, the birth of a child, the death of a loved one, we connect with source on some level, I think. So I'm just, I'm just looking at a, a simple, you know, passage in the Bible. It's been there forever. I've heard it forever from a new perspective not a different one, but just an, a, a sort of understanding it from a different example. And then Jesus showed up, <laughs> showed up. Because, you know, I'm, I'm like anybody, you know, did Jesus exist? Okay, well, let's show me the evidence. What's the, oh, there is, Josephus mentions him, and then you've got these other things. And then I'm, I'm, I was studying, um, uh, was, I was in a monastery in Tibet. Used to be Tibet, now it's India, Kashmir, a place called Pest. And the abbot of that monastery said, you know, Jesus used to live here. He studied here. And I looked at him like, uh, which Jesus are you talking about? <laughs> he said, Isa, you know, he studied here. He was, he was here. He was um, studying Buddhism. And I, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, this is a translation problem. I'm missing this. And then I started doing the research. Well, actually... There's quite a bit of documented evidence of someone named Isa, who in Asia, that's how he's referred to, how he traveled along the Silk Route um, and, and met the Jains in India and met uh, the Zoroastrians in Persia. And the king of Persia built a statue to him um, and uh, you know, put, put on some of his catchy phrases, I am the way, I am the light, stuff like that. Um, and eventually... Uh, this fellow, you know, the lost years of Jesus, right? You know, the 12, the 24, whatever it is, 12, the 29. So somewhere in his late teens, early 20s, he winds up in Hemis learning Tibetan uh, medicine and philosophy and all the stuff that you learn when you study to be a monk. Okay. True or not? I don't know. But, but they left behind a document. The silk traders who went through that area 
left behind a document that was called the Life of Jesus, Life of, Life of Issa, Issa. And in the 1920s, a, a guy named Notovich, um, a explorer, happened to happened upon this monastery. And uh, Tibetans are notoriously uh, private and quiet about their culture and their world, and they, you know, kept their gates closed for a long time. But this guy was had broken his leg, Notovich, and he was sort of stuck there for a long time. And the abbot, the monastery, said the same thing to him that he said to me. This is about 19, I forget, 1890s, something, you know, turn of the century. And now, if you look up Notovich, you'll see quite a few people say he was discredited and he was this, he was that. But the truth is, Notovich didn't read this document. His Sherpa did. Notovich didn't speak Sanskrit. You know, he didn't read Tibetan. But the Sherpa did, and the Sherpa translated it, and Notovich wrote it down, and then Notovich published... Uh, in French, because he was Russian, in French, a translation of that document. And then in the 1960s, a pandit, an Indian holy man, was there and saw the same document and also did a translation. And basically, it's the same as the first Sherpa translated, okay? So why is this interesting? It's interesting because it's the story of Jesus not told from the Roman point of view. And in this document, they've got some interesting diversions from the Roman version. Let's just call it that. That's the Bible. You know, because all the Gospels went to Rome, and in 300, they were all rewritten. Right? All, yeah. you know, codified. Yeah. And then they all ended the same. Okay? They didn't used to, but then they did. And so in the Tibetan document, where in this discussion of Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jesus studies in, in Tibet, and eventually he decides he has to go back to Jerusalem, and then the story continues, and he's in Jerusalem, he's rabble-rousing. And eventually he gets, uh, it says that Pilate assigned a spy to his group, or that was, and the spy eventually turned him in, and, and then in, in Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, he says, did you say this thing about render under Caesar, you know, things that are Caesar's? And Jesus says, a little different, Jesus says, why are you wasting my time and your time with these questions when you have the power of life or death over me? And in that moment, Pilate says, crucify him doesn't send him off to Herod, just says, crucify him now. And the Sanhedrin come to Pilate and say, you can't crucify, you can't kill him, you can't condemn him, because he's of the book, he's of the Torah. And Roman law says you can't kill him, only we can do that. And Pilate says, get the hell out of here, crucify him. And it's the Sanhedrin who go out and wash their hands in public, because that's a Jewish ritual. And they say, you know, well, we tried. We tried to save this guy's life, but we couldn't do it. Now, if you just look at the face of it, that's storytelling. That's, that makes so much more sense to me, because, of course, if a Roman, the Roman prelate, whatever place he was in, he, he was also the ruler, of, you know, the head of their religion. So he couldn't go out and do a Jewish ritual, because that would be heresy. I mean, that would, you know, just on the face of it, it doesn't make any sense that he would go out and wash his hands and send him to Herod and go, you know, this kind of wishy-washy stuff. Anyway, this is according to Silk Traders, and again, translated by a Sherpa, you know, to a Russian, and again, also seen by the, uh, an Indian years later. So that story of the, Jew, the Jewish elders trying to save this Jesus dude is washed away from history and becomes this kind of reverse story, as we know, and, you know, causes all kinds of chaos and stuff like that. Okay. So, 
at some point, I'm interviewing um, the president of the Newton Institute for Flipside, and I said, have you had any people come in with like a common story that you're curious about? He said, yeah, I've had quite a few clients come in and say that they lived during the time of Jesus, that they knew Jesus, and that his death caused, or his disappearance anyway, caused a lot of stress and, uh, you know, for many lifetimes because they so loved the guy. I thought, I said, well, do they describe him? You know, because if he has red hair and freckles, right? Yeah. Then everybody will be talking about the same guy. And Paul said, <laughs> so Paul Oren, A U R A N D, he's in New York, um, a very excellent uh, hypnotherapist. He said, you know, it's not a question that came up. I said, well, I think that would be interesting. You know, if, if somebody knew Jesus, like, describe what he looks like. Does he look like the photographs? Because there's so many different paintings of him, you know. Yeah. And if you have a consensus, you know, maybe you can argue, like, well, that guy must have existed. All right, so now, a day later, uh, after I was I was having this conversation with Scott DeTamble, we were just talking about the fact that Jesus had shown up in Paul's work. The next day, I was interviewing um, a, a woman here in Los Angeles, who's a friend of mine. She was suffering and struggling because her mom had recently passed and she was having a real hard time. And when I ran into her, she was just in tears. And I said, you know, listen, maybe one of these sessions might help you. So she was like, I want to do it right away. So like a couple days later, we're there doing a session at her house. And the night before, Scott and I had this heated discussion. So, and this is in Flipside. And, uh, and so she goes back to a previous lifetime that has some significance on this lifetime, and she's remembering the year 18, and she's living in Jerusalem. And I, my brain goes, what? And so I, had, I passed, got a note, you know, ask her if she knew, you know, it's Jesus, you know. But she, you know, he doesn't do direct questions like that. So he did an indirect question of, you know, have you ever, you ever see yourself out talking to people? Or, you know, have you ever been to a crowd and heard other people speak? And suddenly she's transported to some talk that Jesus is giving and she describes him and she says, I'm standing 10 feet away from him and I am overwhelmed with emotion. I can't believe what I'm experiencing. I'm mesmerized by the energy from him. Now I'm sitting there in her house going, Oh my God, this is so funny that, you know, the night before I'd be talking like, what does he look like? And now here's somebody suddenly, you know, I didn't talk to her, you know, I don't know how this happened. So then she describes him, you know, um, red hair, freckles. No, just kidding. No. <laughs> um, no, pretty much, you know, as you know, long, wavy brown hair, but Caucasian, not of the region, but deeply, deeply tan. Um, not blue eyes, but brown eyes with gold specks in them, she says. Okay, I think, oh, that's just interesting. It's an account, right? Yeah. The most important thing for her is that she talked to her mother, and, and her mother, you know, put her fears of rest, you know, that she had died. She just wasn't here, you know. So that was the important part of that. But I just thought it was interesting that Jesus showed up. So then Jesus shows up again in It's a Wonderful Afterlife, Volume 2. And in this case, it's a medium talking to Jesus, okay? Mm-hmm. And the medium is asking Jesus questions about his life. And I got this... Uh, it was it's a video, actually. I got this video from a friend of mine. And the medium asked him, so what happened, you know, what happened to you? And so he describes pretty much the same story I just said, living in India and being in this monastery where he learned 
these Tibetan methods. And so when, when he was crucified, there were people on both sides of the crucifixion that helped him and that he survived the crucifixion. And that he then moved with Mary Magdalene to another country, may or may not have been France, and then eventually moved to uh, Kashmir, where he's where he had children and died. Um, and I fell out of my chair when I heard this because, you know, we're, these are all things that I have seen or heard or heard from people doing the research that that Jesus survived the crucifixion and wound up becoming, um, they, his name was Yuz Asaf, Y-U-Z-A-S-A-F, the healer. He shows up again and he goes back on the Silk Road. He goes back home. He goes back, eventually goes back down this, this path where he winds up in Srinagar and he's buried there. And there's a plaster cast at his feet right outside his tomb where you can clearly see um, that whoever is buried in that coffin had, you know, had been crucified. There's a b- wonderful BBC documentary that, you know, it's on YouTube. Um, I just watched it the other day, just one of those weird things, and where they where they describe all this details and and who this guy was. And so, so now again, I'm I'm, I'm pulling you all the way around here if you're still with me. <laughs> And now I'm with my medium, who I've just met, the FBI profiler, somebody who's really good at what she does, Jennifer Schaefer. And I say, can we talk to Jesus? Right? Because why not? (laughs) The worst she can say is no, or she can say, get out of here. She then has the experience of talking to someone with the same information, the same story, the same... And, and so I'm interviewing him, you see? It's a, like, you know, it's not me looking at a video. I'm asking the questions, and I'm asking, um, you know, how accurate was this interview with you before where you said that you had reincarnated a number of times, including 1964 in Florida in the life of a, of a young boy who spent his whole time in an ICU unit because he had osteogenesis imperfecta. And... You know, so Jennifer is answering these questions and is to the best of her ability, but I thought it was interesting that she had the same experience the, the original woman had, um, June, that the medium had and that she had, that when they asked Jesus to come closer or they got closer to Jesus, they had an overwhelming sensation of crying, of sobbing. And so I, I said, you know, just as a test, I said to Jennifer, could you ask him to come closer to you? And in her mind's eye, she does that. And now tears, her face turns beet red, tears start rolling down her cheeks. And I said, describe what's happening. She said, I can't breathe. Um, Something about being close to him takes my breath away. And then I said, okay, Jesus, tell me, what's going on? (laughs) Where does this come from? And the answer was, some people, when you know they're created or their process of creation, who they are, they're closer to the source. You want to call that the Son of God? Fine. They're closer to the source, and their composition is more in tune with the source. And so the questions were, so why were you here? What was your journey here? What did you come here to teach and to learn? He said, or again, you know, I'm talking to a medium, and this is the process, but... Whoever this person is said, 
I came to show people how close the afterlife is, how that the lack of hierarchy that's in the afterlife is how they should behave, how the unconditional love that we experience here in the afterlife is what they should experience while they're on earth, that there is no caste, there is no hierarchy on earth, it's all artificial. And that was his message here on the planet. And it got convoluted and parsed and changed by men. I mean, that was his statement, that they used it for their own political reasons. But the message that he originally came to teach was how the afterlife is imbued in everything, or the spirit world is who we are. We can't see it because of these filters, I'm adding that, but... But we can't experience it by opening our hearts to everyone and to all things. So that was a long way of my saying, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to tear down any walls of any religious dogma. I'm not trying to upset anybody's paradigm. And But if you can accept that perhaps what this person is saying might be true and just see it for what it is, love your neighbor as yourself is the paradigm of what we're doing on the planet that because our neighbor is of ourselves so that so that message of religion you know and the Dalai Lama says it quite well much better than me but that at the heart of every religion is compassion compassion for for less than people that are suffering but it's also compassion for your fellow man, for people who are who are struggling because they're successful, for people who are struggling because they're rich, or struggling because they're poor. You know, once you start to see the planet from this choice idea, okay, I chose to come here, I chose to have these parents, I chose to experience this, then when you run into a person on the street who's homeless, who's suffering from a mental disorder, Think of the courage it took to agree to come and live a lifetime where you're going to experience that. On some level, that person has shown incredible courage to come and suffer. I had this philosophical debate with a former Tibetan monk, um, somebody that I know, he's a professor in California, and... Uh, and we were having this discussion, and I was telling him, you know, listen, this research shows that we choose our lifetime. It's not based on karma. He said, are you kidding me? You think I would choose to be born uh, HIV positive, uh, you know, an African in, in utmost poverty? Why would I choose that? And I said, well, which one of those is a pejorative? Which one of those is negative? And once you realize that each one of those is a construct, you find that people who choose difficult lifetimes do it because they want to teach a lesson in compassion to somebody else. I mean, even in the case of whoever this, you know, whether it was Jesus or not, in his discussion of why he chose a lifetime in 1964, born in basically lived four years in an incubator, and the, the medium said, oh, I'm so sorry that you had to suffer through that. And his response was, well, no, actually, I didn't suffer at all. All I felt was the love that everyone had for me. From my experience, I was just there. That was my life. I didn't know from anything else. 
but I came to teach lessons in love to a variety of people, including the doctors and nurses and other people. So the whole concept of sacrifice and courage <laughs> takes on a different you know, light, a different tone when you look at it from that perspective. How does that affect our free will then? Well, the you know it it appears to be the rule of the universe. Free will is the rule of the universe. So, if I come to you, Alan, and say, Alan, I want you to choose your parents, or you know, I look I, as your spirit guide, I can give you a suggestion. And and I've in the twenty five people I've found, I meet all kinds of different spirit guides. There, some of them are, are comedians. You know, you ask him a question, so why are you appearing in a robe? And, you know, like, and one of them answered, because I left my clown suit at the cleaners. Yeah. You know, everybody, <laughs> they have their own sense of humor. People see their spirit guide in, in a very unusual manner. Sometimes, you know, they're, you know, they try to describe and they try to give them a name. But listen, your spirit guide is just that, a guide. It's up to you to choose your lifetime, to choose who you're going to be. Now, are you having any resistance to that concept? Possibly. <laughs> okay. All right, well, well, let's examine it now. And now, you know, listen, I don't mean to be flippant, but no. I was in New York City about a couple months ago, and a homeless guy came up to me, and he was hunched over, just completely, you know, misshapen. And, uh, you know, terrible cough. He came up to me, and, you know, he was asking for a buck. And I said, you know, listen, I'm going to ask you a really impolite question. And he looked at me, and I said, so why did you choose your parents? And he said, fuck you. <laughs> I didn't choose my parents. I said, I'm going to ask you the question again, and I want you to allow whatever the answer to be, be whatever the answer is. Why did you choose your parents? He said, because they were creative. They were artists. They allowed me to do and be whoever I was going to be. I said, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Why did you choose a lifetime of scoliosis? He looked at me and said, how do you know I have scoliosis? I said, dude, you're bent over like somebody with scoliosis. <laughs> he said, I imagine it so I could examine what this, what this feels like. That was three sentences, three questions. Then he came to that. Of course, I had to give him 10 bucks because <laughs> he had to listen to me ask him like really rude and impertinent question. When I say, you know, it's something that's disturbing, you know, listen, uh, in, in this kind of, you know, journey of your, you don't want to bring up stuff that's, that's frightening. However, when you realize you, you don't die, you know, there is nothing frightening. Like how frightening could it be other than examining it? And even when people talk about entities that show up and, you know, demons or, pardon me, but Satan, you know, the question is, who's there? Who is this person? And you can examine it. In Newton's case, he had a minister who uh, came in and during his session suddenly saw Satan standing in front of him and was totally freaking out. He was like, oh, my God. And and he saw the, you know, the the, the horns and the... Of red eyes and breathing fire, and it was totally freaking him out. And Newton, who had been doing this for 30 years and knew that Satan doesn't exist in the spirit world, 
Okay, right. maybe down here on the on this plane, there's people who tap into something that's negative. It's possible, but in his research, where people go, he, you know, for 30 years he's been grilling people because he was more than happy to accept whatever was there. But in, in but everyone said the same thing. There, it just doesn't exist. So here is Satan standing in front of this minister, and and so the Newton said, so describe him. What is he wearing? And he said he's wearing, you know, he's got this these cloven hooves and. You know, he's got hair all over his body, and, and he said, now describe his feet. <laughs> the minister said he's wearing tennis shoes. <laughs> and Newton said, well, that, that's a little weird, don't you think? And suddenly in that moment, he realized it was his spirit guide putting on a mask, like a visual energetic mask of Satan and scaring the shit out of him. And the guide said, you've been doing this your whole life with people, scaring the shit out of people using it as a power and a tool to better yourself, but it doesn't exist. And he realized in that moment that it was like a lesson he was trying to teach him. You see? Yeah. When I was teaching film at uh, Loyola University, I one of my students did a documentary about retired exorcists. <laughs> these, are, these are Jesuit priests, you know, and even the church doesn't, doesn't really believe in exorcism, but they have guys who can do it. And so... They, he interviewed, and, and this guy gave a lecture and you know during the documentary where he pointed out that Satan, as a person, as a negative person, didn't really exist until the plague, until the 7th, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. Up until then, he was like a fallen angel, and he was considered to be such by the church, by everything else. He wasn't the great Lord, the great Bob, the embodiment of evil. It just didn't exist. It wasn't until later on that people started, you know, uh, giving him these these credits, right? Yeah. And and observing that from him. And what I found is, in every single case where people are under hypnosis and they they're you know they are suddenly approached by something that's dark or scary or whatever, you because you have free will, you can stop the action and say, oh now who is this? Why is this person here? What's their role in your life? Why did you agree to have them show up today? What's the purpose of that? And you'd be surprised because, of course, once you, once you eliminate fear by pointing out that it's just a construct, you know, in a yeah. person's mind, then you can really examine these things. You can really pay attention to All right, so I just wanted to do a preamble there, which is <laughs> I'm just saying this is not my opinion or belief. This is what's in the research. 7,000 people over 30 years or near-death experiences. And I've examined the near-death experiences where people talk about going to a hell or something like that. I've even filmed a session where a person, after a lifetime in Egypt, back, you know, thousands of years ago, she saw herself going into this gnashing of teeth place with sulfur and smoke. And then when the hypnotherapist said, why are we here? She realized, oh, this is because this is what I imagined hell to be. And as she, as she realized, she said it, you know, it disappeared, it dissipated. You know, so it's not that, that hellacious realms don't exist, they, they exist relatively to what your experience is. So you can eliminate them and make them disappear in a second by seeing why you chose to be there. You see? Okay? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't want to throw anybody off, but no. <laughs> throw anybody <laughs> off their path. And I know you just had a great conversation with, you know, somebody who, but, you know, let's, let's just examine 
why do we choose our lifetimes? And that person chose that per lifetime to examine these things. And I'm just here to say, well, that's a noble, everybody's lifetime choice is wonderful and noble. And I, you know, I, I will never be the last person to ever um, judge anybody's lifetime choice. However, in the research, he don't exist. Well, so why is it that, that uh, we have these dreams? Like, what's the purpose behind that? Well, I think, I think it's a little bit like, uh, it's like being in a pool of water. You know, when most of the time we get our heads up above the water, and that's consciousness, or our conscious, not consciousness, but that's our conscious daily life. But underneath the surface, there's a lot of stuff going on. And when we sleep, sometimes we drift down inside that other part of the pool. Um, sometimes when people have a near-death experience, they do a full, you know, full boat under the pool. Uh, sometimes people have an out-of-body experience, they, you know, they examine it. Somebody gave me a copy of Seth, books by Jane Roberts, Seth Speaks. It's written, written back in 1970, and this is a woman who channels somebody that I can only describe as being a spirit guide, and he goes into this great in-depth, I haven't read all of it, but goes into these great in-depth explanations of why these things happen. And he was, he was talking about dreams being like a bridge between consciousness, our conscious world, and this other world where, you know, sort of super conscious or, you know, whether where all our information is. Um, and it's not like an amorphous pool of stuff, but our, you know, for lack of a better term, our higher energy has a, has a you know, sort of a, a, an entity exists. So a higher Richard and a higher Alan, let's say. And so when you're having a dream, um, I, for example, I was, <laughs> my dad had passed away and I was doing a, you know, minor surgery kind of a thing and they put me under and I, I don't remember counting backwards, but then I did. And then I remember sitting with my dad, uh, alongside a beautiful river and it was a beautiful grass and he was about 40. So it wasn't him as I knew him because I was, you know, he was probably 35 when I was born. But he's about 40, and uh, we're having this conversation, and we're laughing like we always did. <laughs> laugh, 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 laugh. And then I started to hear the sounds of the doctor's room coming in, you know, the machines and stuff like that. And I looked at him and said, oh, that's my cue. i got to go. And he might, you know, he said something along the lines of, you know, well, see you later, you know, or be good or whatever. So, you know, what was the purpose of that? I don't think it's a, there's a purpose for it other than it just is. You know, that we occasionally dip down underneath the surface consciousness. And by the way, when you do these kind of meditations, you know, as, as we just heard, you know, not there's, you try not to force people into having some kind of a point of view or because, of course, their conscious mind is saying, ah, you know, I don't want to say that I'm not, not comfortable examining whatever reason they, they, you know, they don't focus on it. However, just the act of doing it, like a meditation on it, actually opens up doors in the brain. So the reason for that particular vision that you had is not accessible to you right now, but the mere act of examining it, I think, in my experiences, you'll come to an understanding of what that is soon because you've sort of turned the light on it and it'll come to you, you know, in some other fashion. You'll be sitting around having a cup of coffee and you're like, oh, I see, that's this. 
you know, or you read something about somebody else's account. Oh, that's this. You know, like classrooms in the afterlife. You know, you read somebody's account and you're like, oh, that's what my friend was talking about. You see? Right. So, um, we have a tendency to, to, you know, connect A to B to C to D. That's just how the world works. You know, we put a clothes on, go to work. You know, the process of A, B, C, D. We don't really think of things from this kind of overview perspective. And all I'm saying is, you know, listen, I'm, again, a journalist. I'm not a hypnotherapist. If I was really good, you know, I'd have you under hypnosis and cracking like a duck. Yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, um, you know, but that's not, that. you know, that's, the, the point is, is just examining these things allows you to sort of open yourself up to it. How do people get a hold of you? Like, um, I, well, let's see. I've, uh, my uh, richmartini.com, that's pretty easy. Um, and then I've got a couple of book sites, uh, a wonderful afterlife.com and flipsidethefilm.com. Um, if you want to see people under deep hypnosis, that's why I made Flipside the Film. Originally, I shot this documentary. It was like 30 hours of people under deep hypnosis. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, how do I tell the story? You know, you can't have a 30 hour film. And as soon as you start editing, you know, a session, it looks like you're artificially manipulating, you know, what's happening. Right. And then somebody said to me, Oh, your, your movie's a book. And so that's what I did. I took the transcripts and edited those and I put out the book. And then once the book was out, I realized, Oh, now I can go back to the documentary. I don't have to have it be, you know, sacrosanct. I can just, you know, show you examples of it. And so that's what the documentary is. And you can see people under deep hypnosis, um, you know, talking about these things and, and uh, explaining with in the hands of a trained therapist, explaining why things happen. Um, so, and the film flip side, a journey into the afterlife. It's available on Amazon and Gaim TV, um, which is, you know, coast to coast, George Nuri's company right. and right. I they had me on and they asked me to they asked me if they could distribute the film. On YouTube, if you just search my name and Flipside, you'll find like I say, these you you know, book talks. You can actually see a really good example of uh Scott Detamble doing a session with somebody uh, we were I was giving a book talk in Venice and in the middle of not like the end of the book talk Scott had noticed a woman crying in the front row. And I had noticed her too, but of course I was like, oh, I must have been really bit bad. Yeah. But Scott <laughs> said, you know, can, is there something you'd like to examine? And she said, yeah, it was, when Richard was talking about the massacre of the Indians, I had something go through me that was really powerful and I couldn't stop crying about it. So Scott brought her, um, you know, in front of the camera and did a, an abbreviated hypnotherapy session. He's really good at what he does, as opposed to me. <laughs> and uh, within a few minutes, this woman was back in her uh, tribe, you know, uh, that she lived in in West Virginia. Um, it was funny because I mentioned that, you know, I tracked the tribe down. Uh, somebody wrote to me and said, you know, the Sioux were never in West Virginia, but actually they were. Um, if you look it up historically, in the Trail of Tears, they were forced to leave uh, their mountain. But anyway, she remembered really dramatic events of that lifetime of being in a holocaust of her town and 
you know, she had to, she was responsible for burning all her clothes, something that, that Indian tribes did, I wasn't aware of, and uh, I looked it up. Anyway, and so if you want to see someone doing a hypnotherapy session, just Google Scott, or search Scott DeTambole, T-A-M-B-L-E, and my name, and on my YouTube web page, you can find uh, that event happening. Great. Thank you. I'll, I'll actually have that all linked to our site as well, so people can have that hand. Excellent. All right, my friend. Great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of the Z Talk Radio Network. I'll be back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.